Next, the golden days of radio. Hi, this is Frank Brzee inviting you to join me for the golden days of radio. Great moments from radio programs of the past with the world's most famous personalities. On this program, we are saluting radio's afternoon adventure shows. And joining me in person is the star of Jack Armstrong, Charles Flynn. Well, you know, during radio's golden days, there were many afternoon adventure shows and many popular comic strips which served as the basis for successful radio programs with the leading characters transferred directly to radio. There was Blondie and Gasoline Alley, Jungle Jim and Little Abner, Popeye, Smiling Jack, Terry and the Pirates, and a couple of programs on which I was associated. Major Hoople, on which I played the boarding house kid Little Alvin, and Red Rider, where I had the happy pleasure of being Red's Indian sidekick, Little Beaver. I guess one of the earliest comic strip programs to hit the radio airwaves was Buck Rogers in the 25th century. Buck Rogers is on the air. And now for another thrilling episode of Buck Rogers. Back in 1919, you know, Buck was in the lower workings of an abandoned mine near the city of Pittsburgh when suddenly... The walls caved in, and a peculiar gas caused him to be held in a state of suspended animation for 500 years. Finding himself in the strange and exciting world of the 25th century, Buck quickly adapted himself to the use of rocket-powered spacecraft and other marvelous scientific developments that would seem almost impossible in our present day. With Wilma Deering and Dr. Hewer, Buck has visited Mars, Venus, and Jupiter, Saturn, and even far-off Pluto. His life has been just one amazing adventure after another. Now, in our last episode, you remember, Buck, Wilma, and Dr. Hewer. Then there was Tarzan of the Apes. Again, we bring you another chapter of Edgar Rice Burroughs' amazing history of Tarzan of the Apes. The astounding record of a superman who became the master of beasts and the mighty monarch of the African jungle. By the grace of a kindly god and the tender care of Kayla, at whose breast the little son of Lord and Lady Greystoke was nourished, Tarzan grew to young manhood. From his natural parents, he had inherited fineness and intelligence. Tarzan is off on a holiday. He's returning to the one place in the entire jungle that is his own, a place he had discovered long ago, a tiny hut on the shore of the great water. It has taken him many years to learn how to manipulate the odd mechanical thing which had swung open to him the door of that hut which he would have been surprised to learn was the home of his mother and father and his birthplace. It's late afternoon. The sun of a dying day is filtering through the dank foliage of the trees to make an intricate pattern of onyx and gold on the spongy mold on the ground beneath. The jungle is reverberant with sound. The chatter of monkeys, the singing of birds, and the occasional growling and snarling of the larger animals as they make their imperial way to the waterhole. Tarzan is happy. Happy as a schoolboy on a holiday. Swinging along his tireless, arboreal way, he inhales the dank, pungent smell of the jungle with boyish delight. And the grim grandeur, the poisonous beauty of the jungle fills his soul with a feeling for which the ape language has no name. Meanwhile, off the West African coast, a small tramp steamer is plying her way through a placid sea. In the tiny salon of the ship are four people. Professor Porter, an old savant who exists in the present but lives in the archaeological past, his daughter Jane, a beautiful girl 
whose charm is not only that of beauty, but of wholesome loveliness and intelligence. What are you reading, Father? Uh, 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 yes, of course, my dear, of course. <laughs> I asked you what you were reading. Oh, oh uh, sorry. Uh, a book, Jane. Uh, one of those dusty ones that you persist in believing gives me my hay fever. Another early afternoon adventure program was Flash Gordon. Presenting the amazing interplanetary adventures of Flash Gordon. thrilling adventures come to you as they are pictured each Sunday in the Comic Weekly, the world's greatest pictorial supplement of humor and adventure. The Comic Weekly, now printed in 32 tabloid-sized pages, each page in full four colors, is distributed everywhere as an integral part of your Hearst Sunday newspaper. For the benefit of those who may not have heard the earlier episode, here is the story to date. Flash Gordon, internationally famous American athlete, his beautiful American sweetheart, Dale Arden, and Dr. Zarkoff, a great scientist, left the Earth on a rocket ship. They crashed on the planet Mongo and were captured by Ming the Merciless, the cruel emperor of Mongo, who commanded Dale Arden to marry him and ordered that Flash be killed. But Flash escaped. Through the help of Emperor Ming's beautiful daughter, Aura, who fell deeply in love with him and proposed marriage. This Flash refused, saying he loved Dale Arden. Flash then met Thun, the powerful, huge, bearded prince of the Lion Men, and Prince Baron, a former member of Emperor Ming's court. Joined by Dr. Zarkov, these four friends plotted to overthrow the government of Emperor Ming and rescue Dale Arden. They were almost successful. But at the last moment, with victory practically within their grasp, were recaptured by Emperor Ming's soldiers. And the four friends, together with Dale Arden, were condemned to a fate far worse than death. Securely bound, they were placed on a gyro ship and sent as slaves to the prison city of Hawkmen. Now we continue the story. Can you get the knot untied, Prentoon? It is almost loosened flesh. Just another twist. There. Thou art free. There was little orphan Annie. <laughs> you know, I think she's still around in the comic strips. It's adventure time with orphan Annie. Mighty exciting for Annie these days. What's going to happen to her tonight, do you suppose? And now, our adventure with Annie. Singapore Kirby's divers have at last discovered that big bed of pearl oysters in the bottom of the lagoon. But they haven't yet had time to bring up many of the oysters because night has again fallen on the island. Let's join Annie and Joe, who've crept down along the shore of the lagoon to carry out their part of the scheme. 
We'd better not try to get any closer, Joe. If one of those pirates happened to catch sight of something moving over here along the shore, he'd most likely come over here to investigate. And then the fan would be in the fire. Yeah, I think we'd better stay right here. You know what those fellows who have been rowing back and forth from the ship to the shore are doing, don't you? Well, we've been able to hear them. Another memorable afternoon adventure program was Hop Harrigan. Presenting Hop Harrigan, America's ace of the airways. CX-4 calling control tower. CX-4 calling control tower. Standing by. Control tower back to CX-4. Wind southeast. Ceiling 1200. All clear. Okay, this is Hop Harrigan coming in. Fellows and girls, as you read your newspapers and listen on the air to thrilling tales about the daring exploits of American airmen in giant flying fortresses and liberators, lightning-fast thunderbolts and P-38s, I'll bet you've wished many times that you were old enough to qualify for training as an Army or Navy flyer. Well, even though you may still be too young to join Uncle Sam's air services, you can prepare yourself for the fulfillment of that wish. Listen carefully. The Air Training Corps of America, also known as ATCA, is now establishing pre-flight courses in high schools for air-minded students. These courses teach navigation, aerodynamics, meteorology, theory of flight, engine design and structure, all the necessary fundamentals. And what's more, you can take these courses as part of your regular high school... One of the best remembered, not only from radio and the comic strips, but from television and the big screen, is Superman. Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Superman, Earth's mightiest hero, who possesses incredible super strength with his invulnerable body and indestructible super costume. All know of his amazing supervision, which can see through solid walls, magnify distant objects, and melt steel. But just who is Superman? Where did he come from? How did the Man of Steel reach Earth and acquire his fantastic superpowers? Yes, all the world knows of Superman's amazing feats. But many have never heard the story of Superman's first adventure. In June 1938, the very first story ever published about Superman appeared in Action Comics number one. Here then, from this very first historic issue, the complete story of Superman's first adventure. Telegraph lines broadcast to the world news of a terrible disaster. The Valley Hole Dam is cracking under the strain of a huge downpour. Should it give way, a mountain of water will sweep down the valley, killing thousands and destroying the fertile land. In the office of the Daily Planet... Kent, get me Clark Kent. Oh, he isn't in the office. Well, look for him, Lois, and have him report to me before I lose my mind. Well, why not have me handle the assignment? Can't. It's too important. This is no job for a girl. Oh, no job for a woman. Hmm? I've half a mind to... Lois encounters Clark outside the newspaper office. 
Oh, Clark Kent. You're just the man I'm looking for. You mean you're, you're actually glad to see me? I should say I am. Uh, would you do me a favor and cover an assignment for me? Would I? You know I'd do anything for you. Good. Go to the city hospital's maternity ward. A uh, Mrs. Mahoney is expecting sex tuplets. What a story. Thanks, Lois. You're a peach to let me handle this. Later. One round trip ticket to Valley Ho, please. At the city hospital, Clark Kent learns that no Mrs. Mahoney is registered there. That's strange. Say, I wonder if Lois is by any chance pulling a double cross. I'd better get right back to the office. You brainless idiots. Greatest news story in months on the fire, and you waste your time at a hospital. But, but Chief, I, I, I didn't The worst know part of it is that the last train for Valley Hall has already left. Kent, report to the cashier. You're fired. But Kent has other plans. When alone, he strips off his outer garments and stands revealed in the Superman costume. Now, forget that story. From atop the great Daily Planet building, a weird figure leaps out into the night. Huge distances are swiftly covered by it with giant leaps. Looks like the train headed for Valley Hole. Well, hello, train. And goodbye! If Lois thinks she's going to scoop me, she's badly mistaken. With the speed of light, he reaches the railroad trestle. What the? A torrent has loosened the bridge's supports, causing the tracks to tilt, making a wreck inevitable. The warning whistle of the approaching train is heard. Without a moment's hesitation, the cloaked figure mounts a peak of the rocks and dives forward. No time to lose. Seizing the bridge's supports, Superman presses up, up, until the tracks level. Superman holds the bridge rigid until the train passes over. After which he permits it to crash. Lois, among other passengers, rushes to the windows. What was that? The bridge collapsed. An instant earlier, we'd have been killed. At the next junction, send a warning that the bridge is out. We must warn the other trains. When Valley Ho is reached, Lois fights her way through the mob at the station. It looks like everyone except me is trying to get away. Patsy! Oh, will you give me a lift to the dam? You can have the car, lady. I'm taking a train out of here. Lois drives the taxi at top speed. The dam is not far distant. Atop the dam, Superman has been battling like mad to keep it from breaking. I can only hold out a little longer. Most of the people hereabouts will have cleared out. It's beginning to give. Suddenly, with a great roar, the huge dam collapses. Superman leaps above the water's turbulent fury. But Lois finds herself directly in the path of the great, irresistible flood of onrushing water. Oh, the dam is gone. I haven't a chance. A car in the flood's path with a girl inside. I've got to save her. 
But before Superman can reach the auto, it is caught up and swept along by the flood. Trapped within the car, Lois appears doomed to a watery death. Until Superman, upon reaching it, tears the auto apart and rises with Lois in his arms toward the water's surface. Powerful strokes bring them to shore. Instantly, Superman is off like a shot, racing the flood. He catches up with its beginning and passes it. It is a fantastic race with the lives of thousands at stake, with Superman in the lead. Ahead of the raging, rushing torrent, he springs to a high pinnacle, then pits his tremendous strength against a great projection of rock. Before Superman's might, the huge mountain peak cracks and cascades downward in the face of the flood. The avalanche of rock crams shut the mountain gap below, cutting off, diverting the flood to another direction, away from Valley Ho Town. Phew! Barely in time. Oh, you did it. You saved all those people. Oh, I could just kiss you. Well, As please, a matter please, of fact, I please, will. Please. <laughs> wow, what a kiss. A super kiss for a superman. Suddenly, sweeping Lois off her feet, Superman leaps outward. Enough of that. I've got to bring you back to safety, where I'll be safe from you. <laughs> the first time you carried me like this, I was frightened just as I was frightened of you. But how I love it. Just as I love you. When Valley Hold Town is reached... Oh, don't go. Stay with me, always. Perhaps we'll meet Later. Hello, Chief. This is Clark Kent calling from Valley Ho. Yeah, I got here by airplane and have some sensational news. Am I rehired? Okay, C connect me with the rewrite man. As Clark leaves the phone booth, he encounters... Lois! That wasn't a nice stunt you pulled on me. But I still like you. Oh, who cares? The spineless worm. I can hardly bear looking at him after having been in the arms of a real he-man. Hear that? That's a palliated woodpecker looking for his dinner. He's a big bird with a body about 17 inches long, but he looks kind of small compared to that tree he's working on. Now that's a giant sequoia, and this forest has never even been cut. Some of these trees are over a thousand years old. Many may live a thousand more, thanks to a man named John Muir. Muir was a naturalist whose efforts to preserve these magnificent trees led Congress to establish California's Yosemite National Park in 1890. The first national park was Wyoming's Yellowstone, founded in 1872. Americans work hard to preserve the things we treasure. Many historical societies restore and maintain influential architecture, important artifacts, and artwork. Wherever you find Americans working to set aside the things we love for future generations to enjoy, you're likely to find me there. I'm the spirit of preservation. The most famous detective of them all, not only in the comics and on radio, but in the movies, was Dick Tracy. And now, Dick Tracy. 
This is Dick Tracy on the case of the missing clue. Stand by for action. Let's go, men. Yes, it's Dick Tracy, protector of law and order. And one of my favorites, and a favorite of kids from coast to coast, was Tom Mix. And here comes Tom Mix, America's favorite cowboy. Come on, come on, boy. Shredded, roasting for your breakfast. Starts the day all shining bright. Gives you lots of cowboy energy with a flavor that's just right. It's delicious and nutritious. Bite-sized and ready to eat. Take a tip from Tom, go and tell your mom shredded Ralston can't be The Tom X. Ralston Straight Shooters bring you action, mystery, and mile-a-minute thrill. Tonight you're about to hear another episode in a baffling mystery. The mystery of the vanishing village. How can an entire village, houses, stores, streets, and over 600 people disappear almost overnight without leaving a trace. This is the baffling mystery that now confronts Tom Mix. For the village of Smithville has vanished. Two men have been murdered, and a young girl named Mary Slade has narrowly escaped with her life when someone attempted to kill her because she knew too much. a little chat with Hardy Post. He still hasn't come down for breakfast, has he? Hasn't budged out of his room since last night, Tone. Sent down an order of a cookie to send his breakfast up on a tray. We'll bring Mr. Post some questions to chew on. Come on. Uh, <laughs> uh, can't say I care much for that Hollywood publicity man, Tom. Hardy Post and his boss, the so-called Great Dane, never had a very good reputation in Hollywood. Now, here we are. Uh. Bring it in. Oh, Mix, Sheriff Shaw. Thought you were my breakfast. Do I look like a fried egg? To preserve our friendship, Sheriff, I'll not answer that one. Friendship is a mighty important word in these parts. You're right, Mike. Now forget about your stomach for the moment, Hardy. I want to ask you some questions. You take it seriously, don't you, Mix? About being a marshal in this hick town of Dobie. Hey, you were great in films. All this western gear here around the room... Can you still use this uh, lariat? Oh, I imagine I can put a loop on what I have my eye on, Hardy. Let me see. I think you get your rope spinning like this. Oh, good. I still know how to put a rope where I want it. You put it on me, i take it off. Well, at least the loop isn't around your neck, Hardy. At least not yet. They hang people for murder. I don't know what you're talking about. Yes, you do, Mr. Post. As sheriff, I've seen that look on men's faces before. You know exactly what Tom is talking about. It's as clear as creek water. Listen, Hardy, I know everything. I know how Smithville vanished. I know how it came back. And I know who's behind it. You couldn't. Oh, but I do. You and the Great Dane wanted a hit movie. You'd do just about anything to get the publicity to make a hit. It meant millions of dollars. You two hatched up a scheme to make our whole village disappear from the face of the earth. How could I talk a whole town's full of people into getting lost? You and the Dane needed help. And I reckon Dane could spot a man who would do just about anything for enough money. A man like Sam Smith. That's why his boy Hank couldn't take the greed that has come to possess Sam when his whole town seemed to be getting smaller. 
You mean Dane got Sam Smith to talk all the people who rented his stores and houses into going into hiding somewhere? Yes, Mike. For a supposed publicity stunt. Those people owed Sam a lot, and they hadn't seen through him yet the way his boy had. But Sam still has them hiding out somewhere. Where is it, Hardy? Lion shacks on the Mesa? Those caves on Thunder Mountain? Uh-huh. That's it. The caves. You don't know what you're talking about. How could the village, the houses, the buildings come and go like magic? It was magic. Hollywood magic. The movie crew disassembled that handful of buildings in Smithville, stored them, and put them back when the time came. All clever work. But I could smell the fresh sawdust of new construction when Smithville reappeared. Well, how could you transport all that stuff? Oh, you shouldn't have asked that one, Hardy. You used the trucking company of Salathiel Albine and the railroad spur managed by Harvey Phillips. And when it got too serious, they threatened to talk. And you lost your head and killed them. No, no! Oh, yes. Things were getting out of hand. Mary Slade wouldn't wait with the other villagers. She wanted to see Hank Smith. Then greed-crazed Sam Smith, her future father-in-law, struck her down. Now, that's obvious from the fear she showed when she mistook the son for the father. You're right, Mix. It's all coming apart. Things going wrong. Why couldn't they stick to the script? Ah, those are my sentiments exactly, Hardy Pose. Oh, you opened that door quietly, Dane. Tom, that looks like some kind of foreign gun the great Dane is toting there. Where are your yes-men now, Dane? Oh, I don't need them for this mix. I've relied on flunkies too much lately. My problem is that I need a whole new cast. I would have started the replacements with Mary if it hadn't been for that interfering Pecos. But uh, all in all, I think I'll enjoy beginning with you instead. I don't think you will. Dane, you've got a lot to learn about the West and real men like Tom Mix. Sure, you got a gun pointed at Tom, but you're a city feller, full of soft living and giving other folks orders. Tom's muscles and nerves are trained to an edge you can't even imagine. And when he sees your fingers start to tighten on the trigger, he'll draw his gun from his holster and fire before your brain can even get the picture. Now, that's nonsense. Bluff! No, Dane. Bluff won't work. Not for you, not for me. This is the showdown. Drop that gun. No! I'll... I'll shoot! <laughs> Take it easy, Dane. I just shot the gun out of your hand. Try counting your fingers. I oh. think you'll find them all there. But that sore hand is just the beginning of the paying you've got to do. You messed in people's lives. You've caused deaths. You can't tell your fantasy from reality. But I've learned what's real in this world for men like you, Dane, and you, Hardy Post, in a jail cell or your own conscience. In the long haul or the short, men like you, lawbreakers, always lose. Straight shooters always win. It pays to shoot straight. And so ends the mystery of the vanishing village. Tom Mix was played by Curly Bradley, featuring Jack Lester as Mike, Les Tremaine as Doc, and Jim Harmon as Pecos, with Art Hearn and Richard Guller. This is a 50th anniversary presentation of the Tom Mix Ralston Straight Shooters on the Air. Start the morning with hot Ralston, and you surely will agree that this warm-up build-up breakfast gives you cowboy energy. It's delicious and nutritious, made of golden western weed. Take a sip from Togo and tell your mom hot Ralston can't be beat.
Katie is brilliant. Let me tell you. What All parents with infants have one thing in common. She saw the cat today and she said, Kaga! I'm sure it's no coincidence. They all believe their baby is the smartest ever born. I asked her how old she was and she held up her hand. She knows she's five months. Of course, many of these parents are pretty sharp themselves. They start saving for their child's education right away. She cries whenever she needs changing. Talk about remarkable communication skills. These parents take advantage of the competitive rates paid by U.S. savings bonds. And now, when you buy bonds for education, they can be completely tax-free. Yesterday, she pulled the books off her shelf. I'm sure she'll be reading in another month. Millions of parents buy bonds for their kids' education, even though they probably expect their little genius to win a full scholarship. Oh, she smears the food on her tray so artistically. For information about the Great American Investment, write U.S. Savings Bonds, Box 903, Washington, D.C., 20226. When the history of radio is written, one program will stand out among all the others. The program is Jack Armstrong, the All-American Boy. It was first heard on CBS 60 years ago. It went on the air July 31, 1933. The program was sponsored by Wheaties, and Jack Armstrong was the ruler of the late afternoon serial set. Jack Armstrong was on the air every afternoon at 5.30 as he and his friends, Billy, Betty, and Uncle Jim, fought crime and criminals from a radio studio in Chicago. Our guest is the star of that long-running program, Charles Flynn. Charles, welcome to the golden days of radio. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure you to be here. big, big part of radio during those early years. As a matter of fact, it's amazing. I have seen cartoons and magazines to this day that refer to Jack Armstrong. Uh-huh saw a New Yorker cartoon, oh, just a couple of months ago. Had a couple of old fellows sitting around a bar reminiscing, and one of them saying to the other one, Jack Armstrong wouldn't have done it that way. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how many people remember. And the program started in 1933. I started playing the part in 1939 and stayed with it until 1951 when it did its swan song. And originally it was a 15-minute, five 15-minute, five-day-a-week serial. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. The last couple of years of the program, it went to a half an hour, three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And the last year and a half, they, as time went on, and I guess our audience grew up and matured from where they were in 1933, they even changed the character. They made it a program called Armstrong of the SBI. Well, they grew him up. The SBI stood for what? Scientific Bureau of Investigation. Now, you started in radio before Jack Armstrong. Your mother was in radio. Yes, indeed she was. Now, we started, as a matter of fact, she and I started in radio together in 1931 in Chicago at WGN. Uh, it's a very interesting uh, story that I'll make as brief as I can. My mother and father were both actors who had gotten out of the business when they started raising a family, and my father went back into the printing business, which he had learned as a child from his father. But along came 1929, the Depression, and the printing shop closed. Mm -hmm. But an old friend of theirs from uh, their stock days in the theater had stayed on in radio and was a director at WBBM in Chicago. He called my mother one day in 1931 and said, they are casting a program for kids called Skippy 
which was the predecessor of Jack Armstrong, the first program sponsored by Wheaties. Uh And he said, they're casting young kids in this. If you clean the kid up and you bring him in, I'll get him in the studio from there on in. It's up to him. She did. We went in. I read. I didn't get that part, but my mother was sitting out in the lobby at WBBM and found out that they were casting another show at WGN up the street. She took me by the ear. We went out. We got up there. She talked her way past the receptionist. Uh-huh. We got in. We auditioned for the part. I got one, and she got the other. Did you do other programs besides Oh, yes. There were, there were many shows that I started out. I worked in my mother's program in Bachelor's Children because of my great talent, <laughs> not because of any connection. But uh, And there, in other soap operas, I worked in Ma Perkins, in Merton Marge, and then there were a number of shows, uh, kid shows that went on from 31 to 39 that you, you, you freelanced. You went from program to program. For, for the listeners, it might be interesting to tell them how a radio show was done. First of all, you worked from a script. We worked from a script. You did mm-hmm. not have to memorize anything? No. Uh, but how many rehearsals did you have? Uh, we would, uh, when I started playing Jack Armstrong, it was very, very interesting thing. We recorded the program about a month in advance for the stations that were not on the network. So we would go in at 9 o'clock in the morning, right. record a program, which would take us until about 11, 11.30. We'd be back in the studio at 3 o'clock in the afternoon to rehearse the live program, which we had recorded a month before. And we would rehearse that uh, two, three times, do the first broadcast at um, 5.30, the second broadcast at 6.30. Oh, you did a live and a repeat? We did a live and a repeat. Live for the stations on the, for the Eastern east. and Central time right. zone, and a repeat for the, for for the, the West, West Coast. Coast. Mm-hmm. Ah, because I always thought uh, Jack Armstrong was one program. They recorded it for the West repeat. Uh, no, we, we, we did it live did. For, for the stations that were on the telephone line at that ah. time. The stations that were not on the telephone line got the recordings. <clears throat> those were those 16-inch records yes. that were recorded, you said, a month before. Um, about a month before. And then they sent them to all the stations so they, that they were not on the They pressed them and sent them to the stations right. that were not on the network. Uh-huh. Very interesting doing that, too, because we recorded them on wax. You made a mistake <laughs> 13 minutes and 50 seconds into the 15-minute program, and you started all over again. There was no editing. No editing. <laughs> no. Jack Armstrong was one of the first programs to f- feature premiums, I think. Yes, I, b- I believe it was. Well, there, there were a few of them that were on at the same time. Jack Armstrong, Little Orphan Annie, uh, all of the, those kids' uh, serials did, all, all offered their premiums. But uh-huh. um, Wheaties and General Mills and Jack Armstrong were, were really a leader in that uh, in the, well, that end of the business. Now, do you remember some of the premiums they had? And we Billy had the and we had the Heiko meter uh, uh, that sat on your belt. And the secret and whistle the, ring. That's right, the secret right. whistle ring. Oh my goodness! <laughs> yeah, with your with your secret code on it. Right. And um, and then they had uh, some kind of a what was a, what was that uh, a, a lie detector? Oh yeah, yes, yes. <clears throat> and oh, the Heiko meter. And the Heiko meter. Sure. Yeah, that you put on your belt and told you how far you walked or yeah. ran. Uh huh. And you sent in the, the audience, the children, kids in the audience would buy their box of Wheaties, send in a box top, and a few pennies at that time, and get the, uh, and get the premium. And get the premium. Mm-hmm. Sure, and those premiums today, even though they cost a dime in 1939 or 1940, are probably worth $1,000 or more now. I wish I had saved did them. Did you save any of them? No, I did not. <laughs> did you make a lot of personal appearances? 
No, as Jack Armstrong, we didn't. General Mills wanted to keep the identity of that program uh, not secret, if you will, but they didn't want real people associated with it. Jack Armstrong was Jack Armstrong. There were no credits given in the early days yeah. until AFRA came in and uh, the union... Well, Franklin McCormick was the only Franklin one. Franklin McCormick, uh, the announcer, the announcer, was the only yes. one who got, who got credit on the program. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. And there were some very good, you know, prior to my playing the part, Jim Amici played the part for six years. Don Amici's, Don Amici's brother young was brother. The, uh, mm -hmm. about the original Jack Armstrong, uh, one of the yes. first. Mm -hmm. yeah. Then uh, between uh, Jim and myself was an actor named Stanley Harris, who later did an awful lot of work with Jack Webb as Stacy Harris. Oh, did he? Yeah. Uh -huh. And uh, Dick York played Billy on the program right. <clears throat> in its later days. Uh -huh. And, uh, oh my goodness, we had... <clears throat> some very, very fine actors on the program. Did you ever have trouble doing a live show? For instance, did anybody, anything funny ever happen? Did you drop the script? Uh, was there an explosion? Did somebody burst in the studio at the wrong time? Any of those things well, we, we always heard? We had, we had one experience, which was very, uh, it was funny to us at the time, not funny to our director. Johnny Gannon, <clears throat> who was playing Billy at the time, and I, between the live broadcast and the repeat broadcast for the West Coast, we were doing an episode which was set on a sailboat. Sound effects man had a huge tub full of water that did the effects of the boat going, going through the water. After the first broadcast, Johnny and I thought it would be a tremendously funny idea to run down to the drugstore in the Merchandise Mart and buy a two-pound box of soap flakes. <laughs> Come in, sneak into the studio, dump it into the tub, and wait to see what happened. Uh -huh. We waited, and it happened. It started out just fine, and the bubbles started to rise in the tub that the sound effects man had, and the sound got thicker and thicker and thicker until there was nothing but slush. <laughs> uh, we got through the program. And our director came out, he looked at John and said, you were part of it. He looked at me and said, you were part of this, and you're through. You're fired. He relented the next day after we repented. <laughs> uh, well, and where is he going to get those kind of voices, <laughs> right. you know? Oh, that's funny. That's the only time you ever did any that we... Well, he was probably on your case from then on. Yes, he was. Well, he was, he was a great disciplinarian. You've got to remember that we were a bunch of 18, 19-year-old kids you were 18 years this. old when you started. Yes. And uh, we were having an awful lot of fun. And he sure. kept reminding us that this is a very serious business. Well, You're not here yeah. to have fun. <laughs> now, what did, what did they pay you in those days for radio? Uh, when, uh, on Jack Armstrong, when we started, as I said, we did a recording in the morning. We did two shows in the afternoon. We, we spent about six to seven hours a day doing the program. And this was 1939. And we were paid very, very well. We were paid $175 a week. That Which in 1939 then, was sure. big, big money. Yeah. yeah. The one thing that everybody talks about and doesn't seem to remember uh, correctly is the theme song. Mm -hmm. um, Wave the flag for Hudson High Boys. I know it all. Can you set us straight <coughs> on that? Because everybody has a different version. All right. Well, and you I'm, were there. I will now set music back about 100 years. Okay. <clears throat> but the way it was when I was on the program went as follows. Wave the flag for Hudson High, boys, show them how we stand. Ever shall our team be champions, known throughout the land. Have you tried Wheaties, the best breakfast food in the land? Won't you try Wheaties, with milk and some fruit, they're just grand. They're crispy, they're crunchy, the whole year through. 
Jack Armstrong never tires of them, and neither will you. So just buy Wheaties, the best breakfast food in the land. <laughs> well, remember you heard it here first from the man who invented it, Jack Armstrong, the all-American boy. Charles Flynn, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Political and military news. Security. Internal information. Exchange rate. Host country news. Internal information. Base news. Club activities. Internal information. When people think of AFRTS, they think of entertainment programming, along with news and sports. But for over 50 years, our primary mission has been to provide internal information. In fact, the single most important product and service that AFRTS brings to you is... Internal information. And now, a complete Jack Armstrong adventure. Jack Armstrong! Jack Armstrong! Jack Armstrong! Jack Armstrong, the all-American boy. Wave the flag proud and high, boys. Show them how we stand. Ever shall a team be champions, known throughout the land. Wheaties, breakfast of champions, bring you the thrilling adventures of Jack Armstrong, the all-American boy. Listen, fellows and girls, you know what I'd like to do right now? Well, I'll tell you. I'd like to ring bells and blow whistles. <laughs> Thanks, Mr. Sound Effects Man. Yes, today is really good news day. Here's the story. In the first place, today Jack Armstrong starts on a brand new radio adventure. One of the most exciting and dangerous he's ever had. I know you won't want to miss a single episode of this thrilling Jack Armstrong adventure. In the second place, we're welcoming back a lot of Jack Armstrong's old friends. We're mighty glad to have you back with us. And there's a very special welcome for the fellows and girls who are hearing this program for the first time today. We hope that you'll all get a lot of thrills and real pleasure out of Jack Armstrong's newest adventure and that you'll make the acquaintance of those extra good Wheaties flakes right away. And now, Jack Armstrong, the all-American boy. After their thrilling experiences on Easter Island, Jack, Billy, and Betty have returned to Hudson to continue their studies. Uncle Jim is back in Hudson, too, and is engaged in experiments in developing a new type of power so that his airplanes can fly tremendous distances without stopping to refuel. Right now, Jack is busy, too. In his workshop at home, he is hurriedly putting the finishing touches on his new shortwave receiver. So Billy and Betty are driving out alone to Uncle Jim's office at the airplane factory with an important-looking letter that they've just picked up at the post office. Listen. Say, Betty, this looks like an important letter for Uncle Jim. Sure hope he's at the airplane factory. Well, it ought to be important, Billy, with all those stamps on it. I'll say. Came all the way from the Philippines in a clipper ship. Gosh, wouldn't I like to make that trip? I hope it doesn't mean that Uncle Jim will have to go to the Philippines. I hope it does, Betty. Then maybe we can go with him. Oh, there's the factory. But, Billy, the shades to Uncle Jim's office are pulled down. Hey, that's too bad. If he isn't in, we're going to have to find out where he is and take this letter to him. Oh, I think he's in. I just saw someone pull the shade aside and look out for a moment. That's funny. Uncle Jim never has his shades down when he's in. Well, here we are. Get out, Betty, and we'll see who's in Uncle Jim's office. Uncle Jim ought to be here this time of day. Oh, I don't know, Betty. He's been spending a lot of time experimenting with atomic power in that big laboratory that's built in the middle of Knobs Hill. His door's closed. We better knock. I guess he's not in. Hey, wait a minute. The door's not locked. Let's look inside. Nope, he's not here. 
gosh, what's been going on in here? What? What, Billy, look. Everything is topsy-turvy. I'll say it is. Look at Uncle Jim's desk. All the drawers pulled out, papers scattered over everywhere, why, even the telephone is knocked over. And look at those filing cabinets. Billy, somebody's been in them, too. Say, it looks as though a cyclone had swept through the office. I'll bet the cyclone had two legs, Billy. Remember, somebody was looking outside through the shade when we came in the grounds. That's right. But where could he have gone to? <gasps> look, I bet you he slipped out through the next room. The door's open. Come on, let's look. Well, there's no one in here now. Nothing but Uncle Jim's shortwave radio set. No, of course he isn't here now. If he was a burglar or a prowler or someone who had no business here, he naturally would beat it the minute that he saw somebody coming. And I bet you he got out this way. He could have come in here as soon as he saw us and then gone into the hallway through that door and made his escape through the back of the building. Billy, hadn't we better telephone Uncle Jim at the laboratory right away? You bet we had. We'll use Uncle Jim's private wire, too. Hello? 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 What's the matter? That's funny. The telephone's as dead as a doornail. Gosh, I'll bet you the wires are cut. Oh, wait a second, I'll look. They're not cut here, Billy. Say, that's bad. That means that they've been cut from the outside, Betty. Every phone in the building will be dead. We can run over to the laboratory in the car. Come on, let's hurry. No, wait, I've got a better idea. Jack ought to be in on this. I'll bet you we can get him on Uncle Jim's shortwave transmitter. Jack told me he was going to work on his receiver this afternoon. I hope he's testing it and he'll pick up your signal. There. Now, as soon as the tubes warm up, we can transmit. There, they're warming up now. J.F. Hudson calling J.A. Hudson. J.F. Hudson calling J.A. Hudson. Hello, this is J.A. That you, Billy? That's Jack. He's answering. Tell him to come right over. Glad you called, Billy. It gives me a chance to test out my set. Oh, thank goodness it works. Why? What's the matter? Betty and I are over here at Uncle Jim's office at the plane factory. Uncle Jim isn't here. But somebody has been searching his papers, Jack. Gosh, the place is a wreck. Listen, Billy. You and Betty look around for clues, and I'll jump in the car and be right over. Oh, swell, Jack, and make it fast. Signing off. Gosh, you'll be over here in a couple of minutes, Betty. Come on, let's see what we can find. Everything's such a mess. It's going to be hard to find a clue. Oh, gee, Betty, when things are in a mess, it's easiest to find clues. I'll examine the desk, and you look over there, all over the rest of the room. Yeah, she didn't seem to leave much, did he? I mean, much of anything that'd give him away. Well, I can't find anything either. Maybe there's something by the window where he was looking through the shade. Billy. What's the matter? Find something? No, but there's a man outside standing by a car. He's looking at this window. Let me see. Move over just a little, Betty. There. Say, he does look suspicious, doesn't he? I don't remember ever seeing him before, Betty. Gosh, that's a high-powered car he's got, too. Billy, maybe he's the man who was in here. Let's quick run out and see who he is before he gets away. Oh, he's jumped into his car, Billy. He's leaving. Can't we catch him in our car, Billy? Oh, not a chance, Betty. Gosh, my bus gets St. Vitus dance when it hits 40. Why, he's making 60 already. Oh, look, here comes Jack now. Why, he did her. Hey, Jack. Did you see that car that just went by you? You mean that low-flung job that was doing 60? That's the one. We think he got away in it. Who? The man who was rifling Uncle Jim's office. Boy, I wish I'd known I'd have forced him into the ditch. I can't catch him now. He's out of sight. He's been all through Uncle Jim's papers. The office has turned inside out. Did you find any clues, Billy? Gosh, not a thing, Jack. Maybe there's some fingerprints around. We didn't oh, have time. fingerprints won't help much now. We can get them later anyway. Where's Uncle Jim? He's not here, Jack. We think he's at the Atomic Laboratory in Knobs Hill. And the telephone wires are cut here. They are. 
Gee, that oh, looks let's serious. go to the laboratory, Jack, and tell Uncle Jim. Anyway, we've got an important letter from the Philippines to deliver to him. You bet we'll go there, Betty. You two hop in my car and we'll run right over. Let me have that letter, Billy. Here you are, Jack. I won't promise to go as fast as that fellow did, but we'll go as fast as the law allows. Uh, Jack, do you know why Uncle Jim is spending so much time in the laboratory? Well, he's working with some other scientist on experiments in atom splitting, Betty. But why? Don't you remember what Uncle Jim taught us last year about atoms? They're the smallest possible particle of matter. And if you can split them, you release a tremendous amount of energy. That's right, Betty. And if Uncle Jim can find a way to use that energy, he can make engines a thousand times more powerful than a gasoline engine. Oh, Billy. Well, that sounds impossible. Well, it is impossible so far, but someday they'll do it. And Uncle Jim thinks it's going to be very soon. Oh, there's the top of Knob's Hill now. Jack, why is the laboratory built inside the hill? They built a huge cyclotron there. Well, for gosh sakes, what's a cyclotron? Well, it's something that generates hundreds of millions of volts. They bombard the atoms with this high voltage. So it's dangerous, awfully dangerous. That's why they built the cyclotron in a rock chamber right in the middle of the hill. There's the door that leads into the hill right now. <gasps> Look, Jack. Look at that car parked there. Isn't that the same one that went by you so fast? You're right, Billy. The very same one. Oh, then maybe that same man is inside the laboratory now. I'll bet he's in Uncle Jim's laboratory office now. Hold on. Get out quickly. We'll see if he's in there. I'll open the door for you, Betty. There's a long hallway, and Uncle Jim's office is at the other end. Come on, Billy. There's a light in his office, Jack. Uncle Jim must be there. Either Uncle Jim or that other chap. The door's closed, but somebody's in there. I can see a shadow through the glazed glass. Jumping chimney, Jack. That's not Uncle Jim in there. He's too thin. We'll soon find out. Look out, Billy. I'm going in. Say, who are you? And what are you doing in here? Who are you? By what right you come in here? By what right? Say, we've got a lot more right here than you have. Jack, he is the same man who broke in Uncle Jim's office. He's done the same thing right here. Been all through Uncle Jim's papers and everything. Watch him closely, Jack. He's about to do something. I'm watching him, Betty. Now, you. How about explaining just what you're doing here, searching through those desks and files? What I do here is my business. I shall go now. Stand aside. Oh, no, you don't. Quick, Billy, close that door. Hey. You're not going to leave here until we get Uncle Jim. You'll find out why you're ransacking his papers. Stand aside, I tell you, or it will be the worst for you. I'm staying right here by this door. And you're not going out until we get Captain Fairfield. Betty, see if you can find Uncle Jim. He's probably... <gasps> get out of my way! I oh, up no, you're not. Take that! Oh, boy, Jack, a beauty. Boy, you gave it to him right in a chair. Oh, look out, Jack. He's picking up a chair. Will you stand aside now? Or shall I smash this chair over your head? Watch him, Jack. He looks dangerous. He is dangerous, but he's not going to get by us. Billy, when he swings at me, I'll duck and you go for his knees. But he may get you. No, I'll duck it. You give him the old tackle. Look out, he's coming. Okay. All right, you asked for it. Oh, I, I got him, Jack. Hold on to it, Billy. I've got him, too. Uh, Hold his legs, Billy. I've got his arms pinned. Uh, Betty, lend a hand. Get that picture wire off the wall, quick. Hurry, hi, Jack. I'll stand on the desk and try to reach it. Don't. Keep on holding him, Billy. I've got his shoulders down on the floor. I'm holding him, Jack. He'll never break away from this hole. I've got it. He's getting the wire from that picture. I've got it. All right, Betty. Twist it around his ankle. Twist it tight now. Okay. I am, Jack. Tight as I can. Why would kill you? Climb on the desk and get the wire from that other picture. Hurry up, Betty. Watch out. Jack, his arms are working loose. What no, you don't. Go. Grab his other arm, Billy. Yeah, got him. Oh, boy. I'll sit on his head. Hurry up, Betty. We've got him. Oh, I dropped the picture, but I've got the wire. Oh, hurry up. We've got him for the moment. Here, wrap one end around his wrist. This way. Twist it so it holds. Here, Billy, help me hold his arms together. All right, Jack. We've got him. Tie it to the other wrist, Betty. Add a girl. Wrap it around and around. Yep. There you are. Let's get off him, Billy. He's trussed up now. Gosh, that was a tussle, Jack. Well, Mr. Whoever you are. Now I guess you'll wait until Uncle Jim comes. Uh, this is an outrage. 
You will pay for this. Well, if that's an outrage, why don't you yell for help? We aren't keeping you from yelling. I tell you, you will pay for this. I shall not forget. Let's look at those knots, Billy. Good job, Betty. They ought to hold him. And now let's find Uncle Jim and see what's going on here. Looks as though Jack and Billy and Betty have really stumbled into some excitement, doesn't it? But who is this mysterious stranger? And why is he interested in Uncle Jim's papers? Has Uncle Jim some important secret he's trying to guard? Listen in, all of you, at the same time tomorrow and see what happens inside Knobs Hill with Jack Armstrong, the all-American boy. This is Franklin McCormick saying goodbye until tomorrow for General Mills, makers of Wheaties, Breakfast of Champions, who have just presented another episode of Jack Armstrong, the all-American boy. The best breakfast food in the land. Wave the flag for Hudson High, boys. Show them how we stand. Well, that concludes this copyrighted edition of the Golden Days of Radio. The commercial references were for entertainment and are not endorsed by the Department of Defense. By the way, I'd like to thank Dr. Fred King, the number one authority on Jack Armstrong, for helping with this program. Under the Uniform Code of Military Justice, all charges against a service member must be signed by the accuser under oath. The accuser must state that he or she has personal knowledge of the alleged offense. This helps prevent individuals from falsely accusing their fellow service members. It's another protection under the Uniform Code of Military Justice. This is Frank Brzee inviting you to join me next week for more from Radio's Golden Days. <laughs>